Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Georgie Barden, a 20-year veteran of the biopharma industry and consultant specializing in process and change management. Georgie started Fertility For Me in 2019 in response to her eight-and-a-half-year struggle with infertility and her passion to fix broken processes. Our conversation with Georgie rounds out our first series on body literacy and will address the importance of understanding your fertility as a form of women's empowerment and reproductive choice and freedom, and the importance also of food literacy as part of managing one's fertility. We will also examine the various ways in which reproductive freedom intersects with class and privilege and how access to these choices differ for many women. Welcome, Georgie. Thank you, Terry. It's nice to be here. You were a 20-year veteran of the biopharma industry. Yes. Had your inside knowledge of drugs impacted your body literacy at all? It's interesting. I think it's more my fertility journey that really helped with body literacy. So obviously, as a science major and working in the pharmaceutical industry, I was taught a lot about how the human body works and had a great understanding of it. But working in this industry, you're very focused on the diseases that are affecting certain parts of the body. And it wasn't until my fertility journey, and it wasn't even until later in it, how I really got an appreciation of how the body works. For example, things like intensive exercise could negatively affect certain hormone levels in your body that affects the ability to get pregnant or the way I was eating, really, really thinking about all that goes into our food and making sure I'm eating organic food. And if I make bone broth, which is very healthy for you, it can't just be random chicken bones. And and it was through this whole journey with fertility that I really started to understand the nuances of how the body can be impacted, but also frustrated by the limitations of what is available to ensure that we are as healthy as we can be. What do you mean by some of the limitations besides, as you refer to eating organically, which I guess is a limitation in terms of financial limitation in class, do you mean by knowledge or is there something else that you know, you're referring to? Oh gosh, there's so many limitations that one can speak of. So one, definitely um, from a class perspective, I remember going to visit family in Alabama and I could not find healthy food. I, I couldn't. And I was unbelievably shocked. And I said, okay, now I understand why you know, there's a, a significant weight problem in Alabama because you can't find it. You have to actually look for it or choose to cook at home. And when families nowadays, we have to do so much on our own and it's really expensive to find care. And so how are you going to cook on your own? So that's from an economic perspective. But then even traveling as a consultant, I spent many, many years and days in airports. And when I learned through my fertility journey that I needed to avoid gluten and dairy, I couldn't find anything to eat. I think I lived on lettuce for a while. 
or almonds. And then Kind Bars came out. So I lived on Kind Bars. And now people are catching on and there's so much more available. Even the restaurants, airports are getting renovated. So they're available to travelers. But then also the knowledge. I have friends who work at some of the top medical facilities in the country who don't believe in the whole gluten-free diet. And so I've really had to stand up for my knowledge and belief. And quite frankly, I think my fertility doctor said the best thing ever. He said, look, you can't eat gluten based on your immune profile. And I said to him, why? And he said, look, there's a lot we don't know about gluten, but I can just assure you that based on your profile, you should not be eating it. And that was the best answer. He didn't try to make up data. He admitted that there's a lot we need to learn. So there's just so many facets to understanding it. And quite frankly, there's just a lot of research that still needs to be done. So with regard to gluten, I've actually read recently that there's a myth that our bodies are either allergic or can't process gluten. And one article I read recently said that it's more likely that our body is responding to the pesticides that are involved in producing wheat and therefore gluten. Have you heard about that? And this is from about two months ago. I have not heard about this article, but I would not be surprised because when you think about even traveling in Europe, Friends who move here have said they've had to completely redo their recipes when they come to this country. And additionally, yeah, I mean, there's really, there's not much more I can say than that, except I would not be surprised because we're constantly learning more and more. And something is clearly happening because now all of a sudden people can't eat gluten when people have been making bread out of flour for hundreds of years. So right. some something is going on and I've never figured out what it is, but this is an interesting article. I wouldn't and be surprised. I'll, I'll look it up and share it with yep. you. I, of course, the proof was the fact that people who are unable to eat gluten here are able to in other countries and other parts of the world, right? So <laughs> I'll be quite honest with you. I was in Germany the month before I got pregnant with my last IVF and I had a pretzel. And I have endometriosis and I'm not supposed to have gluten, but I was kind of at the end of my rope, had my pretzel and I still got pregnant. So who knows? So getting back to your discussion on body literacy and how it came about as a result of your fertility journey, what about when you were younger? Had you exposure to any of these things in the past? Had you an understanding of how food affects your body? Did your parents have any knowledge and pass it along to you? Did you learn it at school? My mother was quite advanced. I mean, she was doing yoga in the 80s before yoga became cool and a fad, um, or I should say a thing that everyone understands um, is healthy for them. I shouldn't call it a fad. But she was always about eating healthy and understanding different aspects of the latest on what to be doing in life to improve yourself uh, from a health and wellness perspective. So I had that, but outside of that, So at what point were you forced in a way to learn about your body and fertility? How how old were you at that point? Sure. So I was 36 years old, I believe. And were you in a relationship? Yes. So I had just gotten married and... I we were about to go on our honeymoon and I happened to go to my OBGYN. And based on something that I said, I don't even know what it was because it's not very typical for OBGYNs to do fertility testing um, right away. And she 
did some blood work and called me right away and said, you need to go to a fertility doctor. And I was so shocked because I, my grandmother had 15 kids. Everyone in my family blinks and they get pregnant. And I just had no idea. Now, at that time, though, I had been living in New York, and New York is quite ahead of the time. So I was already starting to get a sense of being healthier and things like that. But this was a whole different ballgame with fertility. And were you ever on birth control? Yes. At what point did you stop before seeing that doctor? I stopped just a couple of months before seeing her. So I'd been on birth control since probably 18. And I was often on it, you know, for a while. But I do have in the back of my mind, you know, if, if our fertility rates are increasing so much. It's not just because people are having, trying to have kids later in life. Um, there's other factors too for the rise in infertility. So I have a lot of questions to try to understand why that is the case, which is also why I wanted to start this company. What is the industry knowledge with regard to birth control and its impact on fertility? I haven't seen any great data around it. Um, I have not investigated in great detail yet, but from what I've seen, it's unclear. In front of us is the book Rage Becomes Her by Soraya Chamali. Um, and I, in my most recent interviews that just aired, I've had conversations with health psychologists and other researchers around the impact of trauma and abuse on different aspects of a woman's health. There were connections with irritable bowel syndrome in, in terms of the physiological uh, impacts, higher rates of chronic pain, and fertility was one of them as well. And so I'm wondering, it would be really interesting to have more research on the ways in which just being a woman in society and all of the emotional labor that we take on, all of the stress that we take on, and its impact of walking around in fear potentially has on our biology and then becomes passed on through epigenetic variables. And I think that that's something that we should, we don't even think about or talk about, but we should also at least start the conversation to include infertility. Absolutely. And women's health in general, there are so many questions. When you look at the cost of a disease burden versus the NIH funding, diabetes, it's 300 to 1. For endometriosis, which is a major, major cause of infertility, it's 13,000 to 1. And this, if you look at any women's related diseases, this is the case. And so if we're not researching, I mean, we, we right now have to get to the basics of let's start researching these diseases and trying to figure out what the underlying causes are in the treatments. And hopefully then we can get into some of these more complex issues, or we could figure out a way to look at them both. But it's, there's, unfortunately, there's more questions than there are answers. So what happened after that, after you got your fertility test results back? She referred me to a fertility doctor and I went there and it's funny because you would think after 20 years in the industry where I started my career selling to doctors, I was a drug rep, and I was very comfortable with speaking to them. I worked with specialists, neurologists. I could talk science and data with them, no problem. I go to this fertility doctor, and he 
shows us, it's funny, I think every consult is the same. They show you the chart where it's, oh, you're too old, your eggs are, you know, not as good as they used to be, and here's all these things that we're going to do. And it was a wonderful consultation. I felt so comfortable. And, you know, we were certainly stressed out and nervous, but I thought, okay, we'll just do this and it'll be fine. And I go in for the blood and sano, and a different doctor did it. And he didn't even introduce himself. And for the blood and sano, what they do is you sit in a room and the nurses draw your blood. And then for the sano, you go sit in the chair, the similar chair to when you're getting your annual exam. And they stick a huge rod into (laughs) your vagina and look inside to see, you know, how your uterus looks and just want to see all of your insides and your potential follicle count and the size. And... He, he just sat down and just did it. Didn't say hi. Didn't, or just, it wasn't the doctor that I got to know through the 20-minute consult. And I walked out of there and I went back to my OBGY and I said, no, what is this? And she sent me to another doctor who um, was wonderful because he would sit with you and talk and every step of the way. And it was great, but... What I started to learn from him onward, because I saw 10 doctors by the time I got pregnant, and what I learned from him onward is that each doctor had their own way of doing things. So even though there's the basics of this is when you monitor the woman, these are the types of drugs you may give her to help the follicles grow, and this is how you do a retrieval and a transfer Um, outside of that, there's nuances with every single clinic. You know, one clinic is all about, you must take DHEA. Another is, oh, thyroids are the cause of infertility. And so the women are left to protocol shop. And that's what I ended up doing. And it was quite an exhausting ride. And it took four years. And what was also scary is I had to drill my doctors. Like at one point I looked at my doctor, this was probably the fourth or fifth doctor. And I said, why am I not getting pregnant? I'm not getting a chemical pregnancy. I'm not getting anything like nothing is happening. And so then they did a miscarriage panel, which I had no idea a miscarriage panel exists. I only knew because I bugged him about what was wrong with me. So he did a miscarriage panel and it turns out I had one copy of the MTHFR gene and or FHR. Um, so then apparently that means you're supposed to take extra folic acid, but that did nothing. And honestly, none of the doctors really said much about it. In some cases it's, oh my gosh, you must take extra folic acid. In other case it was, oh, it's no big deal. So that was also confusing. Um, so I kept continuing on and continuing on. And I even had some suspect of immunological issues, but because the data was so limited, People at some of the top medical clinics in the country, i.e. with the Ivy League schools, were doubting that these doctors were valid. And so I got scared and didn't do anything. And it was actually when I was leaving a client that I commuted to on the West Coast every single week. Um, I met with her to say goodbye and to thank her and started sharing my story. And it turns out she had immunological issues got the treatment and got pregnant. So I said, you know what? I need to give this a try. And so I did. And it was very scary because it was more tests. It was expensive. Then he finds out that I may have endometriosis, 
No one in three years had diagnosed me, and it was because I was asymptomatic. And I was told the only way to know for sure if I had endometriosis, so he called it silent endometriosis. So the only way to know for sure was to get laparoscopic surgery, which is expensive. So I said, okay, if you look at the cost of the surgery versus doing another IVF, which never has worked up until now, it's better for me to do the surgery than it is to do another IVF and fail. So I did the surgery and they found endometriosis. And once I was done with the surgery, I tried naturally and I was on a very intense project. So I wanted to wait for the IVF. Once the project was done, I wasn't 100% ready to go with this doctor because it was still scary. So I started looking through who were the best doctors I'd seen up until then. I interviewed the best three and I asked them really hard questions. And the last question for every doctor was, what's different now than the past three years? How, what are you going to do that's going to help me get pregnant? And so I went with the person who was doing the immunological treatment because it was the most different than any other doctor was going to do. And I got pregnant. And, you know, it was just looking back how exhausting and, you know, comments from friends. um, Like I remember I had one friend who said, oh, when I see my husband, all we have to do is look at each other and I get pregnant. And she knew I was dealing with infertility. And also back then, people weren't talking about it as much as they are now. And, you know, I had this career. Am I supposed to tell people that I'm secretly going to the doctor at seven in the morning to get blood work and trying to race to my 830 meeting? Um, So it was, you know, a horrific ride. But I mean, it led to success, which is great. But um, there's a lot of women I talk to who are in my shoes. I mean, there's a woman I recently talked to who's been at this eight years and still doesn't have a baby. So that was the first time you got pregnant? Yes. After that? Okay. And was it a successful pregnancy? And so how many years did it take for you to get pregnant during that period? Um, So it was four years to get get pregnant. And how many IVF treatments? I think it was, funny enough, I have to say this, as a consultant and as someone who is a project planner and process-oriented through this, I couldn't track everything. I was so exhausted. I'm like, let the doctors do it for me. So I I started to lose count. But I think this was my third or fourth IVF uh, with a doctor who believed in thyroid problems are the cause of all infertility. Um, I did probably 11 IUIs. And a lot of that is because insurance mandates it. And so even though IVFs are supposed to be more effective, insurance mandates you to waste money and get older. (laughs) To then do the thing that works. Let's let's define some of the terms you've yes, used please. so far. So endometriosis, what is it and what are the symptoms that you were not showing? So endometriosis is when tissue is growing outside of your uterus and it can grow to a number of organs inside the body, which is why it's actually a complicated surgery. I was recently at an endometriosis conference by the Endometriosis Foundation of America. It was the 10th anniversary. And they were talking about how in an ideal state, you really need a team of surgeons because once you open the woman up, you don't know where the endometriosis will be. And it requires the experts who understand those body parts to be able to do the surgery. Um, which actually also brings in a class issue because in New York City, it's very easy to find all these specialists. But if you go to rural areas, 
they don't have access to that. And that's a really, you know, tough situation. But as far as the symptoms of endometriosis, they include cramps. So those women who are really, really suffering during their periods, those they probably should be looking at whether or not they have endometriosis. Long periods, heavy menstrual flow, bowel and urinary disorders, nausea and or vomiting, pain during sexual activities, infertility, and chronic fatigue. So those are some of the symptoms that people should be watching out for. So in other words you weren't exhibiting many or any of these symptoms? None of them. Wow. Okay. And even if you were, we know that there's a women's health gap in this country and that women's pain is minimized or often overlooked. And so who knows whether or not a medical professional would have been taking your responses seriously enough to even be able to diagnose it. That is true. And actually, at this recent endometriosis conference, they spoke a lot about that. And there's also a lot of research out there about how in any chronic condition related to women, it takes them um, an average of four years and four doctors to be diagnosed because they're often referred to therapists for depression and anxiety when, in fact, they have actual conditions. So you also referenced the term IUI. I I know what that is, but could you also define what that is for our listeners? Sure. Simply, it means intrauterine insemination. And what happens is a man's sperm is injected into a woman's body through her vaginal um, area. It's like a turkey baster method. And actually, for areas where women can't afford it, they actually will recommend using a turkey baster. And you referenced that the insurance company requires... How many insertions it, before they go on to other forms of fertility treatment? It all varies. And, you know, the insurance companies may be changing. So there's a lot of innovative companies out there that are going to be forcing change, but it could be anywhere from two to three. And again, it depends on the insurance company and what the actual issue is. But if it's a situation like mine where I just couldn't get pregnant and I just had the hormones saying that I had issues, that was what they wanted to do first. Okay. And so you said it took four years for you to uh, become pregnant the first time. And yet you describe your infertility journey as lasting eight and a half years. So I assume that you tried to have another child? Okay. And how, how did that work out? That did not work out so well. Um, I actually used, I had frozen embryos, which is essentially when the sperm and egg are joined together. That's when they create the embryo. And they were frozen from when I was in my um, mid-30s. And I used them and I got a chemical pregnancy. And I was going through a very stressful time. So one message I I will say is um, if your body is healthy, regardless of your age, please, ladies, don't use those frozen embryos. I know how we all want that baby But until you are in a good mental place and have an understanding of the underlying cause for why you're not getting pregnant or miscarrying, please don't use your embryos because I am now 44 years old, about to turn 45, and trying to use my own eggs would be, you know, it's like a 1% chance. And had I waited for a better time in my life, I might have another baby. What do you mean by chemical pregnancy? So chemical pregnancy is essentially, um, so when you 
after you do the fertility treatment, they test your beta levels, which is essentially um, the levels that they check for whether or not you're pregnant. And they're supposed to be doubling after a certain period of time. Over And over that time, they keep doubling. And my numbers were already low. And so they were wondering if this was even going to work. And the numbers weren't doubling. So chemical pregnancy is another term for uh, a pregnancy that doesn't continue on? Pretty much. Okay. And there's nothing that can be done? Nothing. Okay. Does the embryo that's in you continue to grow or just sort of dissipates and joins the rest of your Yeah, I assume it just dissipates. Okay. I assume it just dissipates. Interesting. And are you still trying to pursue other options for fertility? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. Quite frankly, this has been eight and a half years of my life, and I almost don't know another way. And I, I say this just to be very honest, because this is what we women deal with. Like, I have friends who are my age, and they've said to me, you know, there are still days where I wonder, should I? And so once you've been through this, and you know that it's only going to be science that will help you get pregnant, it's really hard to let it go, even though I mean, I've been at this eight and a half years. I know that it's not going to happen, but it's hard to let it go. And so I'm, I'm working through my own journey of letting that go. As part of your research and different options that you've tried, did it include alternative medicine, Chinese medicine, for example, acupuncture? Yes. And does that work at all when there are physiological aspects that potentially can't be changed? I, I, I'm curious. You know, that's a, a very good question. So what I will say is this, is there is support for at least doing acupuncture before and after your transfer. So just to get the medical terms right, so what will happen is the eggs will mature to a certain size and they are retrieved. So they're taken out of the body. And then um, the sperm is, I should say, merged with them, just to be simplistic, with them in the Petri dish, and then they form the embryo and grow, and then they transfer them back in. So ideally, right before and after that transfer is ideal to have acupuncture. And what I've been told from my acupuncturist is it helps the body understand that it's not a damage. So putting that embryo in is not damaging the body and it will accept it. There are other ways to have um, support with um, acupuncture. So for example, with PCOS, if there are women who are struggling to ovulate, um, acupuncture can help in that respect. With endometriosis, I've actually spoken to my acupuncturist and it was a fascinating conversation. He said, look, I have six endometriosis patients and I treat every single one of them differently. And he said, you know, if you ever want to try again, you need to get the laparoscopic surgery again to see how bad it is. And once we know, then we could treat you. And so it's fascinating that, you know, he has endometriosis patients, but every single one of them, because of the way it manifests, he treats them in different ways. And that's part of why I love um, Eastern medicine, because I think it couples well with Western medicine because of just the philosophies that are there. And it's really nice to see Western medicine doctors uh, accepting it more and more. And obviously this has taken, I'm sure, a toll on you and your husband. Yes. Uh, What kind of resources have you turned to for support in keeping your relationship strong? Wow, that's a great question. 
we've been through a lot, not just dealing with infertility. And we almost have, it's almost like, you know, when you have a relationship of good cop, bad cop, we've almost kind of figured that out where each of us has taken ownership of whatever is going on um, and really try to split the job. And then, you know, it, it has had to come to things like scheduling time with each other. It may seem robotic, but if you don't schedule it, it doesn't happen. And especially now having a three and a half year old, um, you know, and everything that's going on, it's, it's certainly tough. And then also we have our own support networks. Like for example, Resolve offers great support groups. Um, and there's a lot of fertility apps out there that offer support groups and, you know, just making sure that I, you know, haven't stayed isolated has been a huge support. What kind of support groups did your husband turn to? I mean, his role in this is less primary in some ways. And so did he find that he needed support or you know, or he, not? <laughs> yeah, he didn't. So my husband is a researcher by nature. And so he would look up everything that he needed to do for his part. But I forget the the saying, but he would say, "Oh, I was, I'm just I'm just there to, <laughs> to donate the sperm," and it was much more than that. I mean, obviously, he had to be supportive of this. Yes, it is true, all the things were done to my body, but this was really about us. And so he would come to appointments and really be there for me. But I, I think you know, if, for him, it was much more of a research scientific exercise, and then also trying to figure out how he could support me because he could see the pain that I was going through. So what kind of adjustments did you each have to make and as a couple to your diet and lifestyle once you started uh, addressing your fertility? Well, from a lifestyle perspective, because of the costs, it was cutting expenses for sure. And we even had to play the insurance game where we would have to, when we would go to a new job, we would have to figure out secretly because you don't know before you actually get the job if they had insurance. So it was just all that financial playing around with numbers, trying to figure out how to manage. From a diet perspective, um, I had to cut out gluten and dairy once they diagnosed the immunological factors. There were questions around other things that I needed to stop. So I would, I went a little bit crazy. I mean, I basically would find websites and anytime I found any supplement I should take, I'm like, okay, I'll add it to the list. I'll do anything. Um, we would buy a lot of whole chicken and we'd save the bones in the freezer. And once we had enough bones, we'd make bone broth and I drink my cup of bone broth every day. So we really just tried to be healthy and systematic with what we were doing. But it was a little bit crazy because the information is so all over the place and everyone has a different philosophy that you don't really know what to believe. And so after a lot of experimentation, I had to just come to peace with what was right for me. Speaking of insurance, were there any of these procedures that you referenced that weren't covered by insurance? So the medication for the immune factor, um, most insurances do not cover it. And it is three, I've seen people pay 300 to $700 a vial. And depending on your dose, it can last up to four days and you have to take it for 12 weeks. And that's not covered. So if you have immunological factors and your doctor believes that this medication is required, 
that's almost like paying for a couple of IVFs right there. Um, and other than that, like the endometriosis surgery, because of the insurance coverage, they still charge me quite a large fee for that, but insurance covered some aspects of it. So it was like an up and down. It depended on what insurance we had, and but there was quite a lot that we had to pay cash. So this speaks to our earlier reference to the ways in which class plays a part in accessing fertility, one's fertility. You have to first have insurance, and then you have to have, it seems, the time and flexibility in your schedule to be able to go to all these appointments and be resourced in other ways, richly, like you're an educated person, you worked in pharma, biopharma, your husband's a researcher, both of you are very interested in learning and have been, I'm assuming, taken a big role in your own education around all of these issues. What are the kinds of people that you've seen during your treatment? Have they been mainly white women of upper middle class? Or have you found that there's been some diversity in the women that you've met along the way? Right. I will say that it is, you know, there's definitely a gap. And my heart just goes out to people who cannot afford this. Yes, it was a lot of white women. And actually, it was white women and, and Asian women mostly. Um, was who I saw, and very little of any other race and ethnicity. And because honestly, I was in my own little world for a while, I almost didn't really have an awareness of it because I had no brain cells left to deal with anything else. But as I've been building this company, I've become so much more aware through the patient interviews that we've done and through the research around where the fertility clinics are located and some of the new innovative things that are happening we still have a big gap for those who don't have the access, but it's not just the financial access, it's access to the clinics and the care. Because if you look at the map of the United States, they're all on the edges of the country. And once you get into the center of the United States, there's not as as many um, clinics to access. In your research, have you encountered the instances uh, or the demographics with regard to the people who don't have access, who live in the middle of the country, and would like to have access to fertility treatments? Is that something that you've come across? What I've come across more so is a couple of things. One, um, and again, you know, there's still plenty of people to be interviewing, but one is people who are having to hold off on doing treatments for financial reasons. So they may know that they need a treatment or have had a treatment and didn't succeed. And then they have to save the money and wait. And that's really hard because the clock is ticking. You know, it's still a cost and a time factor. And that's something that I've run across. But then also too is, you know, in New York City, you'll have a lot of people that just choose whatever doctor they want because of whatever reason they've heard that the doctor's great or, you know, they like the doctor. But in the interviews that we did with patients, you know, there were a lot who said, I went to this doctor because my insurance said, and so they're mandated by their insurance coverage and they didn't have necessarily freedom of choice. And I'm not saying if you can't go to a top 10 doctor, they're not good. I'm not at all saying that, but it's still, you know, 
impacting the choice because what if things didn't go well with that doctor? Where do they go next? They're limited as well. So then they're going to fall into, okay, my insurance doesn't cover these other doctors. This one isn't working for me. Now what do I do? So they're now going to be faced with those additional costs. But then there's also the cap too, because even you know if you do have insurance coverage, there's an insurance cap. And so if you still need more treatments, so that's why you have to be really thoughtful with how you're spending your money. But because you're learning as you're going and the doctor's learning as he's going about your body, it's a very hard um, game. So there's just a lot of factors there. And of course, access to, like you said, being able to have healthy food. Uh, And it's not just when you mentioned your family visit in Alabama, it's not just healthy food to purchase, but also to consume. If you're visiting family and their lifestyle is a certain way and everybody else doesn't need to eat organic, but you do as the person who's trying to get pregnant, then that'll probably have some impact in terms of guilt or whatever other feeling you might have in, in spending money that is not being equally shared in the family. And speaking of guilt, I I did want to address, you know, I'm sure that, and I ask myself these questions as well. There are a lot of people thinking, who are you to spend all this money when there's all these children that, um, you know, need to be adopted and, you know, who are you to, you know, complain about this, that, and the other when, you know, you're healthy and why can't you just be happy with that? And I accept all of those. And this is the choice that I made, my husband and I made. And we did actually look at adoption. We were talking to the agencies and then I ended up getting pregnant. And I'll be honest with you right now, um, I am so exhausted from having to monitor everything I have done for eight and a half years that the thought of putting a book together to have someone think that I'm good enough to have their child, I'm too exhausted. But there are other options, and if and when we're ready, we'll look at that. But I did want to at least address that because I think that's important to know, and I completely accept it. And I know there are views out there like that. But I will just say one of the things I've learned in life is until you walk in another person's shoes, you will never understand. And this was our choice. What are those other options that you might consider? Um, so there's a lot of options out there, uh, thankfully. So if you want to still be pregnant, you could get a donor egg. If you want to use your husband's sperm, if you want to, um, you know, for perhaps you don't have a husband or don't want to, if you're not using your own egg, use your husband's sperm, you could actually get a donated embryo. Um, you could adopt. Um, and also you could use, uh, do foster parenting uh, to adopt or just to be a foster parent to, to care for children. So those are some of the options that are out there. There's a lot of um, age limit factors to some of these. Uh, So the clock ticks there as well, (laughs) which is a shame because, you know, if you want to be a good parent and let's say, you know, for foster care adoption, even in some, there's just limitations. And so you're on the clock there as well. So it's always a clock. (laughs) Yeah. And I know that over the years, there have been changes to adoption laws, international adoption laws as well. So China used to be open to single parents and it's no longer. Yes. Uh, And then your reference to the clock ticking for adoption, there's a 40-year limit to 
the difference between the adoptive parent and the child that you're adopting. So if you want to adopt a baby, you have to be no more than 40 years old. If you're 45, the youngest child you can adopt is a five-year-old. Yes. And what about the Affordable Care Act? How did that change positively or negatively for people who are seeking fertility treatments through their insurance companies or otherwise? Did it impact the access or supply or cost at all? You know, I'm not familiar with that, how that specifically made an impact, but I will speak to the fact that a lot more states are starting to um, support funding for fertility. So I think it's more at that level. Um, For example, in New York, the state employees are covered. And so we were actually just up in Albany for Advocacy Day with Resolve and trying to fight to expand that access. Do you know if the Affordable Care Act is abolished? What kind of negative impact it might have? Because obviously any kind of pre-existing condition wouldn't be covered. So that you might wouldn't even be eligible. So if someone had infertility, that would be considered a pre-existing condition, I'm guessing, right? You know, that's a really good question. And I, I don't know because, um, yeah, I've, I don't know how they would define infertility. Because you're right, typically it would seem like it would be a pre-existing condition, but I haven't researched how that would be defined. Have you seen recently that the Georgia abortion bill has a trap door for women in fertility treatment? So apparently there's a bill, House Bill 481 in Georgia's Congress right now, the state Congress, which is being considered that it's been famously called the heartbeat bill with regard to abortion. And it defines abortion and forbids abortion at the point of a heartbeat being detected uh, and makes it illegal. And as part of the bill, one of the unintended consequences, uh, according to what I've read, is that women who are undergoing fertility treatment, including IVF, if for whatever reason they need to replace the embryos during their pregnancy and then they need to reduce the embryos during their pregnancy for safety of the mother's health. Any doctor who's engaging in that procedure, even if it's life-saving, would be engaging in an illegal act and it would be considered an illegal abortion And the physician performing this surgery would be charged with a felony and sentenced to prison, as would potentially the mother who's undergoing that treatment. Wow. I have not read this bill, but one of the things that, from a fertility perspective, that surprises me is now there um, are strong guidelines around how many embryos to put in so that Things like this and Octomom, et cetera, does not happen because it is dangerous to have um, multiple children and there's a higher risk of um, of premature babies. And so I, I don't know how to comment on it more than, you know, that's unfortunate, but I hope that by fertility doctors, you know, doing things based on the recommendations and not putting in as many, so many embryos, then this would not be happening. So hopefully that solves itself. <laughs> but funny you talked about the Octomom because I actually read an article about her that said she was doing pretty well, she and her kids. 
<laughs> Which you would never have guessed. Good for her. <laughs> I have one child and it's a lot of work, so good for her. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's talk about your company, Fertility for Me. Tell us about how that came about and what kind of services you're offering. Sure. I've always known that I wanted to start a business and I've had a passion for women's health since back in 1992 when I was finishing high school, starting college. The FDA was mandating that when clinical trials are run, both that women participate in and the research needs to report on how the drugs affected the women. And Ever since then, I've just been absolutely fascinated. And so I've been waiting for my calling. And after having my son and having had some room to breathe and recover from dealing with the fertility, I knew that I wanted to do something in this space. And NYU came calling. I got an email saying there's a business plan competition. And I said yes. And through that journey, I learned how to build the business and what the key gaps were within fertility. And before that, I was a bit scared and overwhelmed because I knew that there was a process issue. Um, And my expertise is process optimization. So I look at everything as, you know, processes are broken. How do we optimize and fix things? And so through the interviews, I realized there was a big gap with the root cause of what's taking so long to figure out why a woman can't get pregnant. There's also a process gap with women realizing that they may have fertility issues. There's a, an issue with women even knowing what basal body temperature is and how their cervical fluid changes in a given month. I mean, there's so many gaps in the process and knowledge around fertility What Fertility for Me is doing is we are acting as a step-by-step guide for women struggling to conceive. And what we do is we first meet with the women and better understand where they're at and create a journey map for them. So it's essentially a, a timeline and list of milestones that they need to take into account. And it's kind of their plan. But that plan obviously will change as we and the doctor gets to know more about that woman. And what we'll do to support her is, one, uh, provide her with customized questions that she should be asking her doctor, because one of the things we find is women either don't know what questions to ask, or they don't realize that they have the right to ask questions and be uncertain of things or be frustrated by something a doctor may not say. And so they should ask questions. So we'll be helping guide them on with their specific issues, what they should ask, And then also customize content, because right now you're searching the internet and it's exhausting. You could be on until two in the morning and you still can't get an answer because it's all conflicting information and you don't know what sources to trust. And so what we want to do is minimize that internet searching for women and really give them just-in-time information based on what's going on with them at that time and give them the facts. But at the end of the day, I hate to say this, there aren't always answers. It's really, here are the facts, and as a woman, you're going to have, or a man, you're going to have to make the best decision for you. And we will also have coaches where um, we will have women who um, have already gone through infertility be the ones who help coach these women because they've been in their shoes, and we'll make sure they match up to what the woman's going through. We also have support groups. 
And the support groups range from anything like I have unexplained infertility to I am the husband of someone who's trying to get pregnant. I don't know what to do. Please help. Or I am I have male factor infertility. What do I do? And so we, we definitely want to make it a community um, support. So those are the things we'll offer. But I think what's important to note is what makes fertility for me unique is we are objective and our sole purpose is to help women have a baby and to minimize the time and money and angst spent in doing so. And notice I say having a baby. I didn't say get pregnant because in some cases it's unfortunately not going to be possible. But we want to support people to have their dreams. So does that mean that as part of the journey map uh, during the assessment period, you've mapped out the entire range of possibilities for the woman or, or the, for the couple? That's a good question. There are an infinite range of possibilities. And so the, the map would be specific to what do we know now? And based on what we know now, how far can we get with a plan? And then when we know more information, how do we adjust the plan or keep adding to it? So it's really going to be dependent because there really are an infinite number of possibilities that could be happening. And how are you identifying both the clients as well as the coaches? Sure. So right now, what we what we believe is we don't want to use aggressive marketing tactics. And so we'd like to focus on word of mouth and really helping people understand um, you know, what other people's journeys have been like, how we've been able to help, and just really reaching out to the community. Like, for example, you know, I've attended the Endometriosis Foundations Conference. Um, there's the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. They're going to have a conference. So to me, it's really all about the word of mouth, but also connecting with those who already support these women. Because there's a lot of great apps out there, medical devices. Um, there's Fertility IQ, which has a lot of great resources for trying to find doctors in your area. And they're it's like a Yelp for um, doctors, but they also have great videos. And I think instead of us trying to rebuild something that already exists, our wish is to really partner with those that already exist and be able to have like a two-way where we are more the coaches that are very specific and trying to direct these women and not waste their time and money and energy and really focus them and work with these partners to make them even better as well. And so hopefully it will be a two-way street. What about the coaches? That's word of mouth as well. Mm -hmm. So what are the costs for this? And yes. I'm guessing it's not covered under insurance, right? At, at this or moment, is there a plan to be, to partner yeah, with them as well? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I have a lot of dreams of, on what could be. We are in early stages. So we are going to be testing the costs. And I have some ideas in my mind. But what we are doing right now is for $20 a month, we're offering a pilot. What role does the ethics of fertility treatment play in shaping the culture and business model for fertility for me? For example, would the company be involved in advocating for certain policy reforms, for changes in healthcare? So um, I'm glad you asked this question because my vision is to change the face of healthcare for women. And I believe that because we are going to be taking a data-driven approach in our model, 
we will have a lot of information about what's working and what's not working. And what I'm hoping to do is influence a lot of things like NIH funding, how insurance companies are choosing what the standard of care protocols are for women. Because at the end of the day, fertility specifically is personalized medicine, and they're using a generic approach to the fertility, and they're actually wasting a lot of money. And, you know, it would be ideal to truly understand what needs to be done, what's working, what's not working. And what's really nice is, you know, we have spoken to clinics, and they think that what we are doing is going to be extremely helpful to women. And these are some of the best clinics in the country. And I was really pleased to get their support because they say, look, after the consult, we don't have a lot of time with these women. And we have so many things to do in a day. And we see so many women and we are devastated when they're not pregnant. And we would love it if they came in very targeted and focused with us on what they need and questions that they have, because it will help us better treat them. So I just see with all the data that we'll be gathering and being focused on just helping the women, that's it. We're not routing them to a fertility clinic. We're not, you know, trying to be biased in any way and we'll remain as objective as possible with the support of, you know, the best experts in the field to guide us on the new way forward. But I could see a lot of influence and change. And that is my hope. Would your website, for example, also include position papers on various ethical issues that exist right now within the assisted reproductive technologies sector, just to guide potential clients and or women in general doing research around how to think about their choices and make them more informed? I mean, at at this time, we um, haven't looked at that. I mean, it's certainly something we can take a look at. At the moment, our main focus, just because there's so many options, even within those undergoing fertility treatments, we really want to focus on getting that right. And I think important to note is um, we eventually want to focus on even women trying to preserve their fertility and those who are just starting out trying to conceive. And it was a really hard decision to say, right now, we're going to get laser focused on those undergoing fertility treatments. And from there, we'll start to see what's happening as the business grows to understand where to focus And it's hard because I'd love to boil the ocean, but I also know running a business well, I have to focus and and we need to make sure that we're doing right by the patients we're serving today. Great analogy. (laughs) I feel the same way. I'd love to boil the ocean too. Uh, So I know you and I talked about this prior to our recorded conversation. There was, I'm going to give you an update. There was a, a bill called the Child Parent Security Act that was part of a bill that New York State was considering that would legalize reproductive gestational surrogacy contracts, as well as legalize the reproductive surrogacy industry in New York State. And amongst many feminists who had taken a look at the details of this bill, myself not included, although I got some summaries of it, the general consensus in terms of analyzing the bill was that it would risk the physical as well as the psychological health and economic well-being of the most marginalized women in the state, women of color, poor women, um, who had disproportionately um, had histories of being abused and or possibly discriminated against, possibly in debt, um, young women with student loans, uh, potentially with dreams of higher education might be, 
um, some of the women that would be, quote unquote, incentivized uh, to participate and be victimized. And so I saw an email yesterday that the bill or this portion of the bill was defeated. And so I wanted to, you know, get your feedback on what your original thoughts were, because we started the conversation with the expectation of talking about reproductive freedom. Um, And for me, reproductive freedom and reproductive choice is reproductive justice and intricately related, of course, to gender justice. And so this is a very, very, I think, complicated issue that calls into play so many different things. And the way that it was described in this letter and petition opposing the bill in some ways simplify the issue, but I know that it's so complicated. I want to give you a platform to respond. Sure. I read what these women had written in their response to the governor's support of the bill. And first, I can't imagine what it's like for some of the women they referenced, like the woman who, the surrogate who was pregnant with twins and the twins and the the woman who was pregnant with them died. And I know that there's, you know, horrible cases like the woman who was pregnant with triplets and the husband wanted to reduce and she had to go to Supreme Court. And these are horrific cases. And I acknowledge that, you know, those things do happen and I don't want to minimize them. But at the same time, by legalizing surrogacy, it really does help those who are so desperate to have a child. And what people don't understand is sometimes a woman um, who is trying to have a child may be able to produce good eggs and her husband has great sperm and they're able to make a great embryo, but she can't carry the baby. And the only way to have a child is for another woman to carry that baby. And when you've worked so hard and spent all this time and want a child so desperately, you're willing to go to those lengths. And right now, because New York does not legalize it, people are now having to add to the cost burden and the stress and travel to other states to be able to have that child. So, so that's one. As far as the surrogates, you know, my understanding, and I've spoken to um, Resolve, the advocacy organization for infertility, as well as some reproductive endocrinologists, and they also support supported Governor Cuomo. And, you know, as far as some of the women that you had referenced and um, some of the issues that they may face, my understanding is when you are hiring a surrogate, there is a lot of testing that's being done. And you know, a lot of information gathering before that person is a surrogate. I have not seen circumstances where someone is being taken advantage of. So I can't, I can't speak to that. I'm not saying it didn't, didn't ever happen. But in fact, I know people who I myself included, I would love to be a surrogate, but I'm too old. And I think there's a lot of women out there that were not spoken about in that paper who would love to be a surrogate and they want to help other women. And so I I don't understand how the bill would affect, you know, women of color or women who, you know, are disadvantaged in some way. I I can't see it. And maybe there is something that I'm not understanding, but I've only seen the other side of it, which is all of the research and discussions with these women that happen before they're even allowed to carry that child. And and I think I'm not in a position either to have an opinion. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I, I will include in our episode uh, links to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine has an ethics committee opinions on all of these issues. And they address, for example, misconduct and third-party assisted reproduction, which probably is one of the gaps in the system in which assessment for eligibility is loose or not enforced and actually allows people who are economically disadvantaged or otherwise to fall through the cracks. And there are other issues too. The top of the line issue here is the consideration of the gestational carrier. So we'll include these links. But there were just when I looked at the list of um, people who signed on opposing Governor Cuomo's bills or list of very famous feminists, including Eve Ensler and Gloria Steinem and, you know, all the famous ones you can imagine. So um, it would be interesting to have a deeper dive. This also goes back to, you know, the idea of you mentioned earlier, you don't want to boil an ocean now, but one of the eventual services or needs that you would like to address is preserving fertility. And for me, I think in my own work in this podcast and in advocacy to end violence against women, I've come over the decades to the conclusion that part of preserving one's fertility is also having choice and being aware of those choices as a young woman as early as possible, but not having those choices in a way that is based on fear or lack of options, like the conversations that I had when I was younger where relatives said to me, if you're going to pursue graduate school and you're not going to focus on finding a partner, you're not going to have a child. Right. You know, or as if it's one of those, one or the other. And in terms of fertility, that was certainly the case. That was around the time that I did need to be hypervigilant about my fertility. But had I thought about this, as a college student, for example, and planning out a career or considering certain career choices, I would have included in that option now advising young women considering freezing your eggs. Or I would also advise not necessarily choosing to pursue a romantic partnership and potentially being a parent at the same time. Um, and or necessarily with the same person, if at all, and considering single parenthood, which I know I'm sure is you know very controversial for a lot of people in our government who are trying to limit or restrict our reproductive freedom. But those are things that I personally have come to think are a really important part of the conversation. And I'm wondering if that might have a place, those areas that I just mentioned might have a place also in fertility for me. Would you actually be going to a younger audience and going to schools and talking about these as options? We would love to. And one thing I I will say is what's been great, and as I'd mentioned before, partnerships. So there's several organizations out there that are through different methods tackling the younger folks. For example, there's the at-home testing for your hormonal levels through modern fertility. And that's great, but that doesn't do all the testing that's needed, but at least you know educate people if they want to do it at home, especially if their insurance doesn't cover it, to be able to get an idea of where their levels are at, just to give them a semblance of what might be ahead. Then there's a lot of these companies popping up around egg freezing. What I will say, though, around 
choice is what I'd like to add to that is not looking at it as just options, but also making sure that one is informed of those choices. So for example, like what I mentioned with modern fertility, great tool. You can do the testing at home. One, check if your insurance covers the testing, because if they do, go to your OBGYN. If not, it may be more cost-effective to use this tool. Two, if you don't want to go to your doctor and you'd rather do it at home, great, do it at home. But also, that's not the only testing that needs to be done to better understand your fertility. Um, With egg freezing, for example, if you freeze an egg versus an embryo, the embryo actually is more effective than the egg. Additionally, you can't test egg quality, only embryo quality. And so unfortunately, with freezing the egg, one, it's not as good as an embryo, and two, you don't know if it's effective. Now, I know that people are reporting per child you want, you should freeze 10 eggs. So one child, 10 eggs, two child, 20 eggs. But I will caution that you know there are plenty of people that we have interviewed where they have many, many, many eggs and either some of them fertilize and none of them are great embryos, none fertilize. Um, so it's, it's not a guarantee. It is an insurance policy. And I think it's important for people to know that as they make choices. But, you know, choices are there, but the information around those choices is also critical. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think just to sort of clarify some of the comments I just made, I think it's important for us to see being informed and making these choices as a lifestyle change and a culture change because you're planning for your future as a young woman, you know, and or a young man, like a young man may want to have a child and may not have to, you know, may not be looking for a female partner, et cetera. And, and so these are things that will involve thinking about if you're going to be eating organically, you know, what kind of, sacrifices you may need to make in your life financially and where you're going to live. Like you said, if the access to these medical care facilities are along the coast, that's something to plan for as well. But I think on a larger scale, it also addresses how we think about families and the laws that would then need to be adjusted to make sure that all of these different kinds of non-traditional so to speak, families are going to get the support that they need. And um, the children that are coming out of these situations are going to grow up with equal access to the media and or the attention and or um, the familial support that they would get in otherwise traditional nuclear families. And I think that's really important because even now you don't see, for example, foster care children or stepchildren in children's books depicted, right? So there's a little bit of, I think, IVF, but not so much. Mm -hmm. But then the more these things become a primary choice, I think the more important it is for us to celebrate and embrace these differences. No, absolutely. And you can see now why we're trying to be so laser focused because There is so much that needs to be done. And what's great is the market is defining itself. I mean, there's so many players coming in. They're successful. They're making noise. People are talking about fertility. There's so many campaigns out there. I say, let's have it and let's all work together and really make this a mission to to help everyone achieve their dreams and not waste time and money doing so. 
Something you hear a lot from survivors of domestic violence when they are looking at all of the reasons of whether to stay or leave their abusive relationship is the impact of culture and family on their decision. And there's this myth that if I'm divorced or if I don't have a husband, I'm going to be less valued and or the child will grow up somehow with less than because there won't be this nuclear family to support the child's development and reinforce the child's status in society. And in my recent interviews, hopefully I've done a little to sort of disabuse people of that notion that it's better to have a healthy environment than an unhealthy one, regardless of who the players are and the people are. And so this is something that I think is very important to our listeners and to this overall topic of gender-based violence as well, because of the ways in which our definition of ourselves as women come into play when we might be actually in danger or in harm's way. And we're allowing that definition to take higher precedence over our own safety. Absolutely. We're at the point of our conversation where we've come to the engendered questionnaire, an adaptation of the Inside the Actor Studio questionnaire. First question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Our future. Women are our future, and our future is at stake. What gives you hope? Knowing that my grandmother, who had 14 kids, escaped hungry, stuffing everybody in two tiny little cars, driving through the border as the machine guns were coming down at them. If they can do that, anything is possible. And what can we do more of, less of, start or stop as individuals or as a society to end gender-based violence? I would say as the person undergoing it, I know this is probably seemingly impossible, but don't isolate. As far as the rest of us, when we know it's there, do something. Thank you, Georgie. I wish you the best of luck with Fertility for Me, and I love to hear how it's going. Thank you so much. Really appreciate making the time to speak with me about all of this, and um, it's great to hear what you're doing as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.